Hello and welcome to the American Theatre Wings Downstage Center. I'm Patrick Page and I'm here with my colleague, the fabulous Isabel Keating, who I have the privilege of working with on stage each night in Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. And... um we're going to ask each other questions. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Isabel. <laughs> what a treat it is to see you. And frankly, most people will be hearing you. And you, what a great voice you have. <laughs> I was so happy when I found out that we were doing this like as a conversation today. I guess I didn't read the memo well enough. I thought we were being interviewed together, which I thought would be cool. But this is cool that we get to ask each other questions. So I've been racking my brain to think of what I want to ask. You. Yes. Well, I have one for you. You do? All right. Yes. Besides all the many that will follow. All right. Is green your favorite color? No, green (laughs) is not my favorite color at all. You play the green goblin. I do. I play... I, I always correct people when they say I play the green goblin. I play a man named Norman Osborne who then assumes a new identity, and that new identity is the Green Goblin. But I I feel for poor Norman, because I think he gets forgotten in the Goblin's theatricality. So I'm his champion. But, you know, Green, in fact, after I did The Grinch, there was a long period of time when I couldn't even look at Green, could not look at it, because it was 15 shows a week, and Mm. I got so physically run down. Mm. Uh that I I just somehow associated it with being tired and being in pain. (laughs) (laughs) Has it changed? (laughs) Even though I love doing that show. um, Yes. It has changed a little bit. I actually bought a green shirt the other day, and I thought, this is progress. That's wonderful. I've never bought a green shirt before. Well, just uh, so you know, Norman Osborn is will never be forgotten in my eyes because one of the few moments that we have on stage together yes. is as co-workers in your phenomenal laboratory. Um, we have deep backstory that goes along with that, yes, which I do. appreciate your, your detail. And I wondered about that too. Um, your transition from Norman to the Green Goblin and playing someone with dual sort of would you say it's dual personalities or well i i i have to keep reminding myself that it's the same man mm. because the writing in a way is so different from one character to the other mm. that um sometimes i forget that it's the same guy mm-hmm. and uh and I always like my performance best when I really remember that it's the same guy and it's now all of these impulses, these animal impulses, these ego impulses that are released in him mm. as if, you know, you, you, you know, you, like some people get when they drink, you know, they get uh, one of the ways we justified when we were in rehearsal, um, we were finding out that uh, the script was written with a kind of a new uh, element for the Norman Osborn character, mm. which is that it, he was now going to be a Southerner. Mm. And this was something that Julie Taymor and Bono and Edge and everyone liked very much. And I kind of pulled the other direction a little bit. Mm. 
because I thought there were problems attached to that mm. for the fans who mm. knew the character very well and I think were reluctant to have that kind of immediate change. And also uh, also for me because the the accent, I thought, made some people discount the character um, in a kind of cartoony way when he should really be a very powerful, charismatic presence. He's one of the most famous men in the world. Mm. So I kept pulling back and back and back on the accent with Norman. But what happened was, all through previews, until finally when we shut the show down and, and were about to reopen, which I guess we'll talk about more, mm. um, I asked if we could get rid of it altogether. And we did for a while in rehearsal. But the problem was that the goblin was just defiant. He wanted to have this accent. <laughs> he was just written that way. And so, so in a way, the the goblin himself took over that 15% of actor and would, would, um, would make himself more present to you even when you were trying to excise the accent. <laughs> yeah, well, it just didn't work when I, it didn't, the, the goblin didn't work without the accent. So, so I, uh, I justified it in my mind by, by, by giving Norman a rather slight accent as if he's been living in Manhattan for, you know, 30 years, mm. but grew up in, you know, in Georgia and North Carolina and, and Louisiana. But just like when you give a southerner in New York a few drinks, suddenly they start speaking as if they're from their hometown again. That when you gave the goblin his uh, superpowers and released all of his inhibitions, that his accent would come back pretty full force. And that seems to have worked because I, I uh, uh, the, the fans at the door seem satisfied with it. They like both characters. And and so that was a, that was a happy sort of compromise for me that's wonderful yeah i love hearing about that part of your process too. How, how about you now you you have a lot of characters in this show people know that you play aunt may mm -hmm. i think a lot of broadway fans were excited um, because they knew you from other things in your career uh most notably and most recently the boy from oz mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. um and they were excited to hear that you were playing this iconic character of Aunt May. And I think surprised when they found out that you were not just Aunt May, but that you were some other characters. Tell us about that. And did you know that going in? I actually did know that. I didn't know the extent to which it would keep multiplying in terms of the roles that I would be given. But that was a pleasant surprise because, as you no, we were involved from the beginning of this process, and it was very collaborative in the sense that as we would discover things in the room, as you've said, um, things would be added in or taken away, and kudos to all involved for having that happen. So, yes, I knew that I was going to play Aunt May. I was aware that I was going to play Mrs. Gribrock, the teacher at the beginning, and I thought, well, that's wonderful. In my heart, I really feel like I am a character actress, if there is a way to define oneself as that. And so you were up for that challenge. See, because me, I think as an actor, mm -hmm. if they'd said, you're playing Norman and the Green Goblin mm -hmm. as one character, and then you'll also uh, be the teacher here and the teacher there, I would yeah. have been like, no, 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 wait a minute there. Wait, <laughs> you, were, you were fine with it. Oh, I, yes. You. I was thrilled because there must be something in my past, but I remember my mother used to always say, I there goes my quick change artist. Um, 
my mom was from Morocco with a very thick Spanish accent, and I actually asked her at one point, "Mom, why do you, why do you still have this accent after so long?" That's my identity. <laughs> so I think that I must have something about the quick change artist in me. I feel like I have. I like to morph, and this gave me an opportunity. I, every single change that I have in the show is a quick change. And I like to do those split-second changes. It's a challenge for me. I think that's one of the things that's kept it fresh for me. Well, I see you running. We have a moment. You know, there are as many moments off stage that people have every night as there are on stage. And we have our moment where I'm going to my places for one number and you're coming and going to your quick change. Exactly. And you're always coming. You go toward your quick change with such joy. you're, You're sprinting to your quick change. Well, I love each of the characters, too. So I've just come from... Of some either an onstage or an offstage continued experience, which I also enjoy. I think you, I've noticed that too. We'll get back to that part of the process too. But at that point, here's another character that I play. When I meet you backstage in in a quick change, I've just left J. Jonah Jameson's office. That's m- our wonderful colleague Michael Mulharan um, as Maxie Jennings. Um, the name was given. As in the in the process, we all sat around the table, and I just that was her name. So I've left. I'm changing out of Maxie and back into Aunt May. And at one point, you and I have some brief moments on stage in a character that's not listed in the program, <laughs> but is dear to my heart. Well, I think you you must have based the accent on your mother. Partially, yes. Partially, I, she's yes. I have an experience with the Spanish accent, but Constance Feynman is actually Filipina, but is related to Richard P. Feynman, which is why she finds herself working with the great Norman Osborne. Norman Osborne. Yeah. Um, and we should say right now that um, Constance has no lines. No. But she does have a, a pronounced accent. Yes. And I think for some people listening, uh, that, that, might, that might seem odd. Uh, but yeah. you've created this entire character that I could sit here and talk to. Mm-hmm. I could ask you, for example, Constance, <laughs> um, tell me about your family. Who's your father? My father is Mr. Dr. Daddy Norman Osborne, and I am born from the belly from the cow. He, he took part me and and some genomes and created me in this wonderful territory. But I also am from Philippines. Yes, but that, obviously that's where this all happened mm. at the time. Mm. At the time, Norman was not allowed in the United States. He has had to move his entire operation from continent to continent, from country to country, as countries would pass laws against the kind of genetic research that he was doing, he would then go to another place. So you're not allowed to tell anybody about your genesis, are you? No, but unfortunately, I do tell some children who come to the <laughs> You <office>. do tell them? <laughs> I do tell uh, them. I'm afraid because, Norman never knew that. Mm, <laughs> I don't tell. Please don't tell him. All right. Uh, uh, but it's important for the children to know because I have a plan and uh, I'm, there's, I cannot say anymore. All right. It's private. Very, very private. It's very private. But one thing, this is Isabel again, <laughs> that I do appreciate and I have to say, from day one, you know, an actor, you are an actor's actor. I love your attention to detail and your, speaking of history, backstory of the character. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I would wager that you continue to add history to that. Do you, is that your process in general? Does it change from character to character from 
play to play? Well, you know, it, 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 I guess it changes. Obviously, if you're playing, let's say, a, a historical character, the character that I was going to play right before I came into Spider-Man was King George the Third. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I was—I had learned all the lines. I was about—I was going to play it in in the Madness of George the Third out at the Old Globe. And I, uh, Adrian Noble was directing, and I was ap- ready to go. In fact, Paige and I were packing our bags. Mm-hmm. It was a Friday at about five o'clock, and my first rehearsal was Monday morning. So we were we were flying out at six a.m. on a Saturday so that we get there and have time to move in and everything because we were going to be there for six months. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I get this call on my phone where my agent says, "I'm about to make your weekend very difficult." Oh boy! We have an offer for you to do Spider Man. So I had to call the old globe. That's a difficult call. Oh, that's so hard. Uh, and say I'm not going to be there on Monday morning. Uh, worked out wonderfully. They got a fantastic actor to play the part. But I had done all this work. And the reason it's germane to your question mm-hmm. is um, then what you're doing, of course, is looking for every scrap of history, every little personal detail that you can get about the man yes. that then you you can use to fill out all the moments in the script. Now, when you're given a script, and I think, frankly, that's why some actors do their best work uh, when they're doing biographical characters. You never, I mean, Frank Langella is always fantastic, but mm-hmm. had, had you seen him as fantastic as he was in Frost Nixon? No, you know, that's that, exactly right. You know, yeah. and Meryl Streep mm-hmm. as Margaret Thatcher. And mm-hmm. you see these things and you just, you see this whole other level of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's to do with, um, with the fact that there's so much available for yes. them to fill it all in. Mm-hmm. And the specificity, the specificity of the of body. It. The body, the movements, and then the they've voice. got to find where that movement comes from and they connect it to something in the person's psychology or personal history. So, so knowing that, I try to build as much of that as I can for whatever character I'm playing. Mm-hmm. And since Norman Osborn doesn't exist, I have to build him out of a bunch of other men. So I built him out of Robert Oppenheimer, who created the atom bomb. Mm-hmm. I also out of Albert Einstein, also out of Ted Turner, mm-hmm. also out of Bill Clinton, Political a number of other figures. men. I, I sensed that. And so it. to pull all of those people together and say, you know, for example, the fact that um, the way Ted Turner's father had pushed him and had mental illness and committed suicide, mm-hmm. I thought was extremely useful and mm-hmm. might be helpful in pushing Norman to the point where he does the things he does. So mm-hmm. those are just all part of our, we have, uh, it's play, you know, yes. it's play. And yes. so when I was a kid, I used to go out uh, in the backyard with my brother and we would make up these characters and we would play for hours and you make a new rule you know that uh, when they kill you with a bow and arrow no no my guy can't get killed by a bow and arrow he can only get killed by a silver bullet and then you've got a whole new part of your character right so that's uh, you know I, I want as much in my imagination when I go out there as I can and then once I know that then I can leave it all alone and just be completely with the other person mm-hmm. in the scene well, so that whatever ha- so that the night the actual night of the show is improvisation right right in character yes you know you have such a facility with that um especially in Spider-Man turn off the dark well you a lot of things piling up here because I have questions about your history with Shakespeare, but also since we just reached this moment where you speak about being in the moment and coming on stage and having the character so near and dear to you that you can live improvisationally in Spider-Man, I love being able to work with you and to witness 
on a nightly basis, your ease at improvisation, I think it's not necessarily something that every actor has in their quiver um, is to be able to break the fourth wall and to communicate as, well, forcefully as you do uh, with the audience and actually have interaction and the way that you can take the temperature of the audience mm. and to know also where you are as the actor. It's just, it's marvelous. Well, I'm so lucky that you know, I have the freedom to do that in this show. I can't think of another. Well, I guess James Corden has freedom to do that now. <laughs> Is in that true? One okay. Man, Two Governors. Um, yeah. But it's rare. Yeah. And that was really uh, something that, you know, it kind of evolved um, because we were we were doing, you know, our long preview process. How long was it? Do you oh, remember? Gosh. Months. Months. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as you recall, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes the show would stop. <laughs> and sometimes I would be on stage when the show stopped. Yes. And it seems silly, given the outrageousness of the character, yeah. that he wouldn't somehow comment on the proceedings. So he had a kind of meta-theatrical, he, as villains have historically, mm-hmm. sort of stood outside the action. You know, Richard III comes straight to the audience and talks to them. Mm-hmm. And Iago comes straight to the audience Shylock comes straight to the audience. Edmonds comes straight to the audience in King Lear. Mm. The villains in in Shakespeare's plays are the ones, and it goes back further than that to the medieval morality plays where the character of the vice, V-I-C-E, mm-hmm. was the one who could talk to the audience. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I think we have this sort of in our DNA, yeah. and we accept it from the villain yeah. in a way that if Peter Parker or, or, or Aunt May came forward and started talking to the audience, we'd say, no, that's wrong. Yeah, That's yeah. wrong. The and so time. I'm very lucky in that regard. Yeah. Um, and, and so what happened was these things happened accidentally. And, um, and the creative team liked it. Mm-hmm. And then as we were building the show and writing new things for the Goblin, and the Goblin became more prominent in the 2.0 version of the mm-hmm. show, um, because, of course, we had the 1.0 version and the 2.0 version, which I guess we should qualify. Yes, let's qualify. Well, let's actually say happy anniversary first. Ha- yes, we just we turned just, one. That's right. Happy anniversary as well. Congratulations, Patrick. Thank you. Um, but, you know, we had the, that's happy anniversary on one on, po- on 2.0. 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> we can't even remember. On 2.0. So uh, anyway, yes. what happened when we got into 2.0 yes. was Bono liked this kind of breaking the fourth wall and this uh, it was a kind of a rock and roll anarchic mm-hmm. uh, temperature to the play yeah. that that sort of cracked open the second act in his mind and yeah. and really gave me a lot of freedom to do that. It's great. And so, for example, last night, Donald Trump was in the exactly. audience. As you recall. <laughs> Which was just so delicious. I don't remember everything I said to him. I do. You do? Would you like me to quote you? Sure. The first thing, I thought you weren't going to say a word. And not to give anything away for future performances of yours, but I will say you began the second act the way you always do, which is introducing yourself as Norman Osborn 2.0. And then you said, I don't know what's gotten into me. Things are going really well for me. I I don't know what's happened, though. I have these hallucinations. And I seem to be hallucinating that I see Donald Trump. <laughs> but I can't be sure if it's the real Donald Trump. And then you communicated with Donald Trump and took advantage of a motion of his or something and said, what's that? And then you said, oh, he says – 
maybe I could see his birth certificate. <laughs> Right. And then he took it on from there. I was the just, audience side. No, I, you see, uh, the it, 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 it occurred to me in the moment that if I, if I said, let me see your birth certificate, <laughs> it could be seen as an insult. But yes. if I let him have the punchline, it was brilliant. Then it would work. But that's what I mean about your improvisational, just so exquisite, your ability to be really have your finger on the pulse. It was, it's just so thrilling. Thanks. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's the great gift of this show for me among many others is that the ability to do that. So, so um, now when you're, when you're doing this, you know, you, I want to talk just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we've been talking about Spider-Man, but I'm sitting across the table from Isabel Keating (laughs) and, you know, people know you from a lot of other things. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, you know, you do. Like you said you do characters. Uh, yeah, and I you're, feel. You, you. It seems like you're an incredible mimic as well. You. Well, it's. I do. I think I have that ability. And well, interesting that you that you're asking because, um, I guess I came to the theater in sort of a, a roundabout way. Um, I never, as most people would, I never aspired to be an actor. Although now that you mention your your brother in the backyard, um, playing play acting i did have that but i was also the impresario Mm. at created the the, was the producer forced my my uh siblings to perform in the backyard but then after the age of 10 i had no interest in that whatsoever but i did take an interest in languages and very early on i left oh so you really developed your ear I did. I might have. Or I might have had a musical ear to begin with. I don't know. But um, the fact that my mother was Spanish and my father Southern, which, by the way, I approve of your Norman Osborne. It's been accent. all over the place. Wonderful. I moved him down. I moved him down into Louisiana. I noticed. I, I was like, yeah. he's, he's getting closer to my father's area. But anyway, so it, long story short, um, I lived kind of a peripatetic life. Uh, I chose to um, kind of uh, left my hometown of Savannah, Georgia, quite young, um, left school, which isn't something I recommend for everyone, but um, I felt like I wasn't getting anything out of it. And I lived in Europe on and off for about four or five years, uh, learning languages, gaining experience, primarily culturally. And I think, you know, also just I'm an observer of life. I think I, I came to belong in the theater. I think maybe that was my ultimate place for me. And it seems like I've been able to process the experiences that I've had and that I try to have in New York is wonderful because we have such a multicultural community here, observing people and bringing it to the fore. And then when I started doing theater professionally, I was very fortunate again to land in Washington, D.C., where I believe you've worked also And that's part of the question I want to get back to about Shakespeare. But I worked at the studio theater and I started taking classes there. And it was a bit like a centipede all of a sudden realizing that it had a hundred legs. I had been working sort of on instinct and then had to undo a lot and redo, fortunately, to build some technique for, as you know, we need, we need that. And then, um, I studied Shakespeare, studied, uh, Greek theater, studied the classics, um, developed an affinity for that, always have been a reader, always um, have been interested in literature and the theater, reading that, and sort of tried to catch up to where I had uh, 
never even begun. So mm-hmm. I started doing theater and uh, I've done many, many plays in many different places now. Um, and that gift for really inhabiting someone else's skin, mimicry, I hate to use the word because it it, it implies a kind of external process, whereas I think mm-hmm. really good mimics, Anthony Hopkins is one of the world's greatest mimics. Really? He does these extraordinary impressions of Olivier and Gilgood and Nicole Williamson, and, mm-hmm. and Kevin Spacey is the same way. Mm-hmm. He'll do... Um, Jack Lemon, and it's exactly like watching Jack Lemon. Yeah. Uh, there's something internal that goes on where you use your observation and your ear to detect something about what's going on inside the person in their psychology and in their emotions. I think so. I, I, fe- I hope so. That to me feels like the process that I go through. Um, because obviously, as you were saying earlier with a character that it, when you're playing a real life, person, such as in the case of Judy Garland, that comes with its own creation of the body and the voice and the you try to emulate that, but you try to get inside of what that is. Where did those where gestures, did where did that voice come from? And put it through your actor uh, process, which is to begin with who that person is, what the history of that person is, and possibly they work together sometimes the outside the that oral thing of hearing the voice the timbre the um the pace the you know the diction yeah. versus non-diction tells you a lot about who yeah. who that person is well i brought i brought that subject up because i wanted to ask you about judy garland i mean that was the performance do you feel like that was the one where you people really became aware of you or did you feel that before that had happened um when you say that people really became aware of you it's sort of a similar thing as i i really don't know i think so in terms of that the level of notoriety but um i yeah frankly yes just in terms of the theater in general and you were if i remember you were nominated for a tony for that yes yes and um, i didn't see it but my wife came home and neither of us knew you at the time and she's like i've just seen the most extraordinary performance oh my goodness thank I've you i've ever seen well i was fortunate to have that role it's it's there is no one has walked the earth like that woman and to have had the opportunity to even try to do it um it's kind of a fool's errand in a way but i'm happy to have undertaken it and it's been a blessing um i think that there have been you know there have been other roles that have been very dear to my heart and also ones that were that sort of took the exploratory thing about the voice Mm. Um, Jim Cartwright's The Rise and Fall of Little Voice is oh, always yes. one that I go back to, and I was fortunate to, to do that. Yeah. But do you have any favorites? Roles? Yeah. Uh, I think the greatest single role ever written for an actor, and this is heresy coming from someone who loves Shakespeare as much as I do, is not in Shakespeare. It's Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh. And the reason is, I think, because uh, Rostand wrote it specifically for an actor, for for uh, Coquelin. And Coquelin sort of had the management of how the role was going to go. So he would say, well, could you put in a bit of this, a bit of that? So it, literally everything that every other character does in every other play is in that one play. Oh, and Cyrano does all of it. And he has literally all the lines. Mm. Because when when they were in rehearsal for it, um, 
anytime somebody else would have a good speech, Coquelin would say, <laughs> well, that's a good speech. That should be mine. And he would take the speech away. I didn't know yes, that. Yes, and it would become his speech. So the poor actor playing Lebray used to have this wonderful speech where he introduces the cadets of Gascon. And Cyrano, and Coquelin said, I think Cyrano should do that. So now it's Cyrano's speech. <laughs> And the actor playing Lebray c- uh, complained about this. Yeah. And, and, and Coquelin said, I don't know what he's complaining about. I talk to him all the time in the show. <laughs> it's a terrific part. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Yeah. Oh, oh, my goodness. We've only got a minute left. I could talk forever. Let I me know. ask, what's the one thing that you know that you would advise someone getting started in the theater? What would it be? I would say do every play, do everything you can. If they won't let you be in the play, ask them if you can work backstage. Paint the scenery. Keep doing, 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 doing. I agree. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to end on because I think so. we we are about to go to the theater and do 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 do. Yes, indeed. And what a pleasure. <laughs> it's so great to talk to you. I you wish too. the only thing I wish is that we had had drinks. Yeah. Other than this water. Yeah. And that it lasted longer. Me too, Patrick. All right. Okay. Well, I'll see you dur- you know, on our quick change. Right. And I stairs. will see Constance. <laughs> on right stage. by the machines. Right by the machines. All right. Bye. Bye bye, Isabel. Talk to you soon. Hello, I'm Heather Hitchens, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. I hope you enjoyed today's edition of Downstage Center. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Our engineer for today's show is Chad Bernhard. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free at americantheaterwing.org. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website, americantheaterwing.org, and click Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.